Thank you. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. To start, if you could introduce our audience to your current work by just telling us a little bit about projects you're working on right now and how you came to ask those sorts of questions. Thank you. Yes, I I have a PhD on uh, comparative history, and my uh, PhD dissertation was about the intellectual uh, transformation. Uh, between the Ottoman Empire and the modern Turkish Republic. So during my studies, I had a chance uh, to look into the intellectual groups within the Ottoman state, uh, their position against the government, against the public, against secularism. And then, of course, other uh, intellectual groups who favored some certain ideologies in order to in their words, save the empire, save the state, and then how uh, these intellectual groups have uh, focused on a constitutional monarchy in the Ottoman state, which ended with the first constitutional period, then the second constitutional period, and eventually uh, we know that the uh, Committee of Union and Progress uh, literally caused the Ottoman state to collapse by taking sides uh, next to the Germany during the First World War. And after that, uh, the, the modern Turkish Republic and the intellectual tradition in modern Turkish Republic uh, was very similar to the last 10 to 15 years of the Ottoman Empire. So uh, after my PhD dissertation, I started to focus on the political side of the transformation because my focus was mostly on the intellectual side. And uh, in 2018, when I moved to Canada, uh, I had the chance to access to some books and articles which were not accessible to Turkish uh, academic audience, actually. So when I had access to these articles and books, uh, I realized that there is a missing point in the transformation of uh, the, the, the political groups from the Ottoman state to the modern Turkish Republic, not as it is told to us. So there is something that has been going on, or there is something that happened, but uh, those things were not so much emphasized in the um, Turkish history books. And also the, uh, those events were either exaggerated or neglected by most of the historians. So I decided to focus on the role of the Committee of Union and Progress and how the members of this uh, committee, or which are also named the Unionists, uh, had an impact on uh, the Turkish War of Independence uh, which is also called as the uh, Turkish-Greek War, and then on the modern Turkish Republic. And of course, uh, uh, the first book that I had to read was Eric Jean Zürcher's uh, famous book, uh, which was published in 1984, titled uh, The Unionist Factor, in which he explained how the Committee of Union and Progress played an important role in the Turkish War of Independence. However, his focus was mostly on the uh, the remnants of the uh, 
Committee of Union and Progress, not the leaders of it. Uh, I mean, the leaders who literally escaped from uh, the country after the end of First World War, namely Enver, Talat and Jemal. So his focus was not mostly on them. So he said that there were remnants of uh, Committee of Union and Progress and they helped uh, the Turkish War of Independence to organize, to gather intelligence, to uh, collect uh, uh, military uh, supplies and uh, to make propaganda to Soviet Union mostly because of the possible Bolshevik support to a nationalist uh, movement. However, uh, even Zürcher himself in his book has uh, said that uh, due to the lack of access to many uh, resources uh, he wished to have access because uh, the, the time he was working on his project was 1980s and it was the post-military coup in Turkey. The, the military regime was strong, so he couldn't have access to the um, archives. He couldn't visit Turkey easily as he uh, assumed he could. So the, the, the resources he had were limited. He said in his book that he knew or he was aware that there were some books, there were some memoirs and there were some uh, documentation about the unionist factor in the Turkish War of Independence. However, he could not access those. And um, when I came to Canada, as I said, I read a book which was not accessible in Turkey. The book was a memoir of one of uh, the members of an organization called Karakol, and Karakol was actually the um, continuation of Tur uh, the, the intelligence agency that was established by Committee of Union and Progress. And after the First World War, the leaders of committee have left Karakol uh, in control within Istanbul and and uh, and uh, commanded the leaders of Karakol, who were secondary leaders of Committee of Union and Progress to organize a national resistance movement. So when I read the memoirs of that Karakol member, I realized that uh, there were a lot of um, missing points in Zurhar's book. And also when I had the chance to search the literature, I found out that the role of Karakol as, a, as, a, as an organization, as an underground organization, which is the direct continuation of Committee of Union and Progress, was literally neglected in the uh, Turkish history literature. So this led me to focus on my recent work. And I have been reading articles and books and anything I can find about Karakol since then. So, and my work currently focuses on the role of Karakol and how Karakol as an organization had a direct impact on Turkish War of Independence and uh, the role uh, Mustafa Kemal, the founder of Turkish Republic, also known as Atatürk, played as a member of Karakol himself. So you mentioned that there were resources in Canada that you couldn't access when you were in Turkey. Can you maybe talk more about obstacles that have arisen in your work um, and methodological considerations that you've had to take into account to address those obstacles or gaps in literature? Yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, 
since the late 2000s, uh, Turkish academic uh, world uh, had started to lose control uh, over the academy itself. What I mean by that is that the government has started to play a more important role in the academic research process. Even uh, at the private universities of Turkey, the academic research conducted by uh, the researchers uh, is now organized and to a certain extent controlled by the uh, higher central uh, education authority. And also most of the funding and grants uh, are provided by the Turkish government and the institutions of Turkish government. And therefore the research to be conducted is limited and mostly directed by those institutions. As a direct result of this, especially historians uh, have a problem uh, to access the archives or to have uh, some certain books uh, in their possession. Because in both in 1960s and in 1980s, after the two military coups, uh, most of the books published before 1960s and most of the books published between 1960s and 1980s were literally collected and burned by the military regime. So most of the books were considered as a threat to the national security, as so I'm using national security in quotation marks, uh, and as a result of this, most of the memoirs, most of the uh, archives, and even most of the um, documentation about the Turkish War of Independence and the period between 1923 and 1950 are lost today. So the, the limited number of resources are in the libraries owned by the state, uh, this is called either the state library or the military library, the library of the Turkish uh, army. And as a researcher, as an academics, you have to pass through five or six clearance uh, steps, stages, in order to have access to that library. And trust me, this clearance is not like a simple uh, criminal record check. It is, it, they check everything. They check your social media. They look at your connections. They look at your friends. They look at your family and everything. So therefore, there are only a certain group of historians, which I call the accepted or, you know, the embedded ones. And those are uh, the ones able to have access to those archives or those books that were already gone. So. As a, as a result of this, most of the historians uh, in Turkey, like me, uh, do rely on uh, foreign resources or, or libraries in the rest of the world in order to have access to this kind of uh, academic uh, publications. Of course, there are universities that have access to databases, but uh, some universities have access to most of the databases only with certain limitations to certain keywords. And that is something done within the country. So therefore you cannot control it uh, as an academic by using VPN, whether you can download that article or book or not. So long story short, uh, back in Turkey, I couldn't have access to most of the uh, books and articles that were published by 
the academics who are employed in the West, I usually send them an email and ask them to send a copy or a PDF to me, uh, you know, uh, kindly. Um, but most of the time, I couldn't. We were not aware of the research that is being conducted. More important than this, interestingly and um, maybe ironically, since I came to Canada and since I started to focus on this work and read more and more and more, I found out that there are some books and some uh, history journals published in Turkey between 1940s, 50s, 60s, let's say, uh, and These books and journals uh, were only published like a thousand copies, 500 copies, 300 copies. And these books and journals were not in the literature or in the bibliography that were published, that of the books that were published by a Turkish academics or even the books that were published by the, the, the foreign academics. So, uh, but I accidentally, or let's say coincidentally, I found a, a source uh, from, uh, a, a, from, a, from an American library, which was a compilation of all these memoirs and books and journals published in Turkey between 1930s and 1960s. So I started to search for these books in the old bookstores in Turkey. Not me, of course, because I couldn't go back to Turkey. I have so many students back in Turkey. I kindly ask them to search the bookstores, the old bookstores for me, the antique bookstores for me. And they started to search and search and search in almost in all the towns of Turkey, in the smallest bookstores. And now I had access to approximately 95% of these books and journals with the help of my students. So my methodology was first to dig out the resources, the journals and books that were published in Turkey, but were never referred in Turkey. And then after coming to Canada, then my second step was to ask my students to go to the bookstores, find the books for me, buy them and scan them or sometimes send them to me via mail. But since COVID-19, they are just scanning and sending them to me as a PDF. And I'm the only person, the unique person who has access to these books as a historian and as an academician because they were never referred before. So there's an entire generation of Turkish scholars who are just not showing up in bibliographies for academics after the 60s. Uh, I cannot call them the scholars. I I I call them the the the, the, the people who have act- actually participated in the Turkish War of Independence. It, is an, it was an interesting period in Turkey after the 1920s uh, because almost everyone in Turkey had an active role in the Turkish War of Independence. By everyone, I mean the writers, uh, poets, uh, journalists, anyone that doctors, uh, anyone that comes to your mind has joined the Turkish War of Independence uh, between 1919 and 1922. And after the war has ended, 
and after the new Latin alphabet was introduced, these people have started to, you know, write their, I mean, they already wrote their memoirs or journals during the war, but then they started to publish them. The first generation of books published in Turkey were the memoirs of the participants of Turkish War of Independence. And those memoirs are uh, very important. They, they contain very important facts. They, they contain very important uh, figures and even, um, you know, experiences during the, during the Turkish War of Independence. And those books were uh, gone. I mean, they, they were not used by anyone else. So because they, they paid uh, to a printing house 500 liras, let's say, and published 300 books between 1931 and 1932, let's say. I'm just giving an example without referring to the name. So and then those books were published, 500 copies were published, and then 400 copies were lost. 50 copies were are maybe in the libraries and there are maybe only a limited three or four copies in the old bookstores. And no one knew that these memoirs existed. So no one searched for them and added them into their academic work. So instead of scholars, I would say uh, the people who were the actual participants of the Turkish War of Independence. So it's more like a oral, local, a written history uh, um, a mixture of all of these uh, different uh, history schools. Great, thank you. So it sounds like this is clearly a very charged subject of study. Could you maybe walk us through some of the main debates, developments, controversies in this field and how you're engaging in those conversations? Sure. Uh, thank you very much for asking this question. First of all, uh, the... the history of uh, the establishment of modern Turkish Republic and the Turkish War of Independence uh, is a very is a very arguable topic because according to many historians in the world it is not a war of independence it is a civil war or a war between the Turks and Greeks and after the war has ended uh, the Turks have uh, established a modern Turkish Republic. However, according to all the Turkish historians and in the Turkish history books, it is the Turkish War of Independence, the Turkish War of National Struggle or whatever you call it. So for the Turkish uh, history students, for the Turkish audience, the period between 1919 and 1922 is a heroic uh, period which means that uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk as an individual has uh, stepped into Anatolia from Istanbul and then uh, with, with an order from the Sultan and then uh, after he stepped into Anatolia he resigned from his duties and he said that he will start a national resistance movement he organized congresses in Erzurum and Sivas and then he came to Ankara and then the Turkish uh, Turkish Grand Assembly was established in Ankara, and then he organized everything, and military was established, and then he was the one who won the war. And after the war, Turkish Republic was declared, and he became the president. And this is this heroic uh, explanation of this period in Turkish history books. 
This is the first school and very dominant in the Turkish uh, context. The second school that has been discussing this era mainly focuses on the 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 the, the authoritarian regime uh, established after the uh, declaration of Turkish War of Independence. Uh, how. Uh, Mustafa Kemal has consolidated power and how he uh, uh, prevented any kind of opposition to develop. So they they say they mostly they, they also say that Mustafa Kemal and his friends had good relations with Britain, Italy and France, which were the occupying forces in Anatolia during the Turkish War of Independence uh, next to the Greeks. But uh, the only war was against the Greeks. So therefore, a British, French and Italian uh, armies or uh, commanders in Turkey uh, even helped uh, Mustafa Kemal and his friends. This is the second school and they mostly focus on these authoritarian tendencies and the consolidation of power after the Republic. But uh, this is not, I mean, both of the uh, dominant schools in this part of Turkish history are missing another point. From my perspective, it is the human factor. What I mean by this is the people who have actually uh, participated in this war, the people who have actually fought for Mustafa Kemal, the people who actually fought for an independence, and the, the secondary uh, figures in the Turkish War of Independence, who were there since the beginning and even before Atatürk or Mustafa Kemal has stepped into Anatolia, who were there before, but uh, gradually who were, um, let's say in the best way, who were excluded from the uh, governance. Uh, so to give you an example, the two uh, leading figures after Mustafa Kemal in the Turkish War of Independence are actually uh, two commanders of the remaining armies of the Ottoman state. One of them is Kazım Karabekir. He was the commander of the Eastern Army. And other one is Ali Fuat Pasha, who was the commander of the Western Army. And both of them uh, were in Anatolia before Mustafa Kemal, before Atatürk. Uh, they uh, were organizing the military. They were... Uh, hiding the weapons that should be provided to the allied forces and they were organizing their soldiers they were indoctrinating them with the idea of an independence and when Mustafa Kemal stepped into Anatolia uh, and when he resigned from his duties first Kazım Karabekir in the east has helped him uh, to consolidate his uh, power as the leader of this national resistance organization. And then when he came to Ankara, Ali Fuat, the commander of the Western Army, has uh, said that all of his uh, soldiers are his, are, are Mustafa Kemal's soldiers now. So if these two commanders were not... Uh, uh, were not in the same side, on the same side by Mustafa Kemal, then he would definitely have no uh, military, no army and no social base within Anatolia. However, when we look at the post-independence uh, war events, we see that both Kazım Karabekir and Ali Fuat 
are the ones who have established the first opposition party in modern Turkish Republic in 1924. And this political party is called the, the Republican Progressive Party. And soon, six months later, it was uh, shut down by the government. And a year after, in 1926, when there was, an, there was an assassination attempt on Mustafa Kemal, these two leaders, both Kazım Karabekir and Ali Fuat, were uh, put on trial in the in the in the uh, in the in the courts of uh, independence established by Mustafa Kemal and his friends. So what I am trying to say here is that these two leaders and the people, the actual people, the soldiers, the villagers who have actually fought in the Turkish War of Independence are the forgotten part of the Turkish uh, history. So what I am saying in my work, what I am trying to do is to find out how these people have perceived this uh, war, how they perceived the role of Mustafa Kemal, and why they followed him. Uh, I'm not uh, trying to argue with the uh, mainstream uh, history schools in that sense. I mean, I'm not claiming that mine is a third way that claims both schools are wrong. But what I'm saying is that instead of looking at the in, uh, at the uh, Turkish War of uh, Independence uh, from a biased side, let's have a look at the people who were actual uh, participants of that war. So could you discuss maybe a little bit about the aims of your work in terms of the audience and the impact that you'd like your research and writing to have? I mean, I want to focus on these uh, social uh, events. I mean, these uh, social experiences, the people and their role in the war. But I, I, am tr- I also try to find the agency of the Turkish War of Independence. There is a lack of agency. I mean... Some people only focus on Mustafa Kemal himself and some people focus on the external factors. But from my perspective, the agency is uh, still the Committee of Union and Progress and its legacy in in Anatolia, in Turkey, uh, under the name of Karakol this time. So uh, uh, what I am trying to do is to build a framework of Turkish War of Independence based on Karakol, the secret underground organization, which was very active in Istanbul, uh, which had so many um, members playing active roles in the ministries, and some of them were translators or interpreters for the occupying forces. So they were always next to them and they collected all the information. So it, it is like an intelligence organization. And they uh, used this information to facilitate things for the uh, Turkish uh, national independence war or the, or the uh, Kemalists in Anatolia. So this role played by Karakol and uh, the relations of Karakol members with, uh, with, with the occupying powers and their relations with Mustafa Kemal is something I want to focus on. And also I, I'm adding a new thing to the Turkish history because uh, Mustafa Kemal in his famous speech 
has uh, said that he never knew about an organization called Caracol until uh, Caracol sent a telegram to the to the armies saying that a secret organization was established. However, uh, my research sh uh, showed that Mustafa Kemal was an active member and he even had a code name when he was going to Anatolia. The leaders of Karakol had code names of Jesus and Moses and Mustafa Kemal himself had the code name of Noah, uh, just like you. And Noah uh, was a direct reference reference to the prophet Noah because he was going to Anatolia on a ship and he was going to collect all the species left in in the in the Anatolia. I mean by species, of course, all kinds of political groups, ideologies, social groups, and then uh, establish a new uh, state and, and a government uh, or organize a movement. So my audience, therefore, is not only the scholars. My audience is the, the, the history readers. My audience is the history students. And my audience is, of course, the, uh, uh, the, the, the history, uh, the scholars of history. But I also want those scholars who wrote uh, books about Turkish War of Independence to read my research after I publish it. They will be my target audience in the first phase so after they read uh, hopefully the students of uh, uh, turkish history and readers of history will also be able to read it because uh, i will use the documentation and uh, evidence in the very simplest way i hope thank you so much for taking the time to explain your work today it sounds very impactful can you maybe to close out talk about where you're going from here do you have any projects or plans that are in development besides this one? What are your thoughts for the future of your work? Thank you. Well, uh, actually, I'm both a researcher and an educator. So I also uh, teach various courses. So my uh, my goal is to, uh, when I was reading about this and when I was writing about this, I found out that the intelligence agency established by Committee of Union and Progress in, uh, in the uh, first uh, decade of the 20th century had members from almost all of the Middle Eastern countries which were then part of the Ottoman Empire. So when I continued reading it and when I realized that all of these former members of the intelligence agency, which is called Teşkilat-i Mahsusa, which means the special organization in English, uh, all of these members, the ones who survived from the First World War, have become either the intelligence officers, security guards, and even um, prime ministers and decision makers of the newly established Middle Eastern states, in, in the region after the First World War, it's mostly by Sykes-Picot and, of course, after the First World War with the newly established uh, constitutions like Iraq, Jordan, even Egypt, uh, Syria, uh, Lebanon. Uh, the leaders and decision makers in these countries were all former members of the special organization. So my research, my, my, my uh, current research also goes on a direction 
to write something, maybe publish a book, maybe publish two books, one of them about the role of Karakol in Turkish War of Independence, and second one, the role of this, uh, the, this uh, special organization, Teşkilat Masusa, the intelligence agency of the Ottomans in the formation of uh, modern Middle East. Because uh, when I look at these people and their trajectories, uh, I see that they all were uh, indoctrinated and trained by the Committee of Union and Progress leaders uh, to a certain extent. So it is very interesting and very uh, fascinating for me to focus on. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.